All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. All you extroverts, stop it. All you introverts, you're welcome. All right. Um, glad to have you here this morning. Welcome to Cedar Mill again. Um, Pastor Matt and one of the one of the pastors here. Uh, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, turn it open to Luke chapter 8. And uh, we are working our way through this, this story of Jesus to, to learn how to to uh, respond to the one who God has sent to be uh, king and savior of the world. Um, this week I was thinking about uh, my kids who uh, are, they are really, they're rad kids. And uh, one of the things though that, that is interesting about them is they have an incredible capacity, probably just like any kid you know, um, to completely tune you out. Um, and they can tune each other out, too, with a vengeance. It's really interesting. And uh, the, there's a situation that will occasionally happen in my house where one of my children will be trying to interact with the other one, and it's like they're trying to interact through a brick wall. So, like, my daughter will be drawing or be... She'll, she'll be into whatever she's into, and my son Milo will be progressively getting louder to get her attention, to show her whichever Lego thing he just built or whatever costume he's wearing or whatever death-defying thing he's about to do off of the couch. And, uh, and Penny has this capacity com- to completely tune him out until like, he's yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs, Penny, look at me! And, uh, and you know, being the very involved father that I am, I wait until uh, it's about to come to blows and then I kind of sneak in with a, hey, Penny, I think your brother's trying to say something to you. And uh, to which the, her astounding response is like this, just turn on a dime that's like, what can I do for you, Milo? And it's like, how can I help you? Yes, buddy? It's like, oh, man, you're so, and you're patronizing him too, you know? It's like, it's just one of those things where it's like, what? You were capable of responding this whole time while he was screaming in your face for attention. And uh, where was this skill 10 minutes ago, right? It's just one of those kind of funny things about kids. And, and it's one of those kind of astounding things that can happen in our lives as well. It's this astounding delay of response to God. Sometimes we can have where we can just kind of tune him out as if none of the things he's doing in our lives is intentional, loving, or caring, or instructive, or meant to reveal uh, himself to us. And in fact, uh, the scripture that we're going to look at this morning, uh, today, speaks to this call to respond to the one God has sent, uh, Jesus. And, and, and it looks at some of the obstacles that get in the way of a response. In fact, uh, I don't know if you remember this last week, but after uh, David finished his message, Pastor Gabby came up to lead us in communion. And one of the things she said that was really, I think, very appropriate and profound, was that while the the message was very important, what's even more important, she said, is what you do next. Do you remember this? This is a a good line uh, from her. She was a good pastoral moment. And the reality of what she's saying is that it's what we do with what God reveals that is of ultimate and eternal significance. So with that in mind, let's hear from the scriptures this morning while Liz and Anna read them to us. From Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 21. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. He was scattering the seed, 
Some fell along the path, it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This is the word of God. Thanks, ladies. That's good. So here is this intriguing story, these words of Jesus um, from the Gospel of Luke today. And what I want to do is I want to show you three things uh, that are going on here related to our response. First of all, the, uh, the obstacles to an authentic response to God. And second, the, uh, what it looks like to own a response. And finally, what, what, what is an outcome of a response to God look like? So let's, let's begin with this first notion of the obstacles that Jesus points out. Luke starts this narrative section by noting that Jesus is traveling from place to place, village to village, and a crowd is amassing around him. Uh, that There are people from all over Judea who are coming to seek and meet and encounter this Christ, and there are all kinds of reactions in a crowd, aren't there? Every time, anytime you get a bunch of people together, you're always going to get a bunch of different types of varying values and responses and reactions, particularly to somebody like Jesus. And so he tells them this story that speaks directly to the various kinds of ways people have been responding and will continue to respond in the Gospel of Luke and certainly will continue to respond to him throughout the rest of history. And so when 
the disciples hear this story, they ask him what it means. They're like, what is up with this story? And so he, he begins by explaining these three primary obstacles to an effective response to Jesus' kingdom message. This section starts by saying that Jesus was going around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So, so what are the obstacles to our response to it? The first one is this outright rejection. We see it right here. It's, it's a hardness of heart that can be compared to a seed hitting the soil of ground that's been, or the soil of a path that's been hard worn by people walking it over and over. And then the seed's picked up and it's consumed by the birds of the air, which in Luke's version represent the spiritual forces of evil, the, the devil. Now, when we examine our own responses to God's word, if we're honest, um, this is one we may see frequently. It's a simple, outright rejection of God's word. It may be something as subtle as, you know, that was a really good application point for my spouse. That was a good illustration for my neighbor. It could be a subtle thing, and it could actually grow less subtle. It could just be a straight up, that's just not, that's not God's word for me. That's not a word for me. That's not a truth applicable to me. Or maybe that's not a truth at all. It can't be true, and I, I won't accept it. Or, or maybe that's not a convenient truth, because it doesn't align with the life I want to live right now. And so Jesus recognizes something uh, that's taken modern people several hundred years to Uh, come to terms with. You see, for hundreds of years, modern people thought that you could be objective, that you could be unbiased. And uh, in the last century, we've seen over and over what uh, philosophers call the postmodern turn, Uh, this recognition that every claim to truth is biased, and therefore there is no neutrality, there is no objectivity, because every person in every community has their own values and biases that create a lens through which we view life. And so Jesus says that this first soil, this obstacle to responding to God that is characterized by outright rejection is not a response that is founded in neutrality or objectivity. It is a response that is completely coming from a heart that aligns with the purposes and powers of the enemy. To outright reject God's message is to be sided with the devil, is what Jesus is saying. It isn't that the devil comes and prevents people from believing who want to believe. It's that he is setting the agenda of unbelief. And to join in this unbelief is to follow his agenda. This is a pretty gnarly obstacle, isn't it? When you uncover what's going on behind our rejection of the word of God. And then there's this second obstacle Jesus brings up. And this is uh, this, this response to God's word that is compared to a rocky soil. It's a soil that represents the person who receives, Jesus says, the word with joy when they hear it, but have no root. And they believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. So the real obstacle here is difficulty. It's challenge. It's the moment that the emotional high of Jesus' kingdom message ceases to feel like an emotional high. This heart condition says, I'm out. I'm disinterested. It is not working for me. It does not perform like a substance. Right? 
And so it might look as benign as simply praying a prayer at a camp and then kind of moving through your life, setting your own agenda, or praying a prayer and going from church to church to church and avoiding any difficulty of community and being known and held accountable. It might look like uh, being excited by the love of God initially, but failing to embrace the beauty of God's holiness such that Jesus is only a buddy and never a Lord. It might simply be the crushing blows that come from a broken world, and instead of running toward God as the only hope in it, we blame God for it. One of the things that we rarely argue with Jesus about is when he says in John 16 that in this world you will have trouble. He offers a a note of the gospel at the end of that, though, and says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. See, uh, the thing is that this condition is a condition without roots. It's, It's not really faith, it's just entertainment. It's a quick fix. It's a seeking of relief without an embrace of change. The psalmist says in Psalm 1 that the blessed person is the one who meditates on God's word and is like a tree planted by streams of water. They put their roots down into what God says. It's not a casual hearing of the word, but a rooted and concentrated hearing that yields a full and fruitful life. Then there's this third soil. And Jesus mentions, it's this third obstacle that he brings up. And it sounds an awful lot like us sometimes. This third obstacle to responding rightly to God's invitation to relationship through grace can be compared to a seed that, while initially growing, is choked out by thorns and weeds. And it represents the heart that's distracted and focused on worries and riches and pleasures. Eugene Peterson's message version says these are the ones who hear, but then the seed is crowded out and nothing comes of it as they go about their lives just worrying about tomorrow, making money, and having fun. And there's some debate over whether or not these second and third soils are saved or not. And the reality of this parable is that Jesus tells the tragic condition of three soils and the victorious condition of one. The the, the debate is pointless. The reality is Jesus wants to say these are obstacles that are utterly destructive. And see, this isn't to minimize the anxieties of life. Jesus speaks to anxiety and worry. This isn't to minimize the good that money can do or even its necessity in life or to to reduce... um, enjoyment or fun and pleasure to something negative, but it recognizes the role that all three of these things can play in utterly derailing a life of faith. See, when worry and riches and pleasures, when what might be and what we can gain and the fun we can have become larger than God in our hearts and lives, it ruins faith. They're the three most effective idols, I think, in our time and culture in rendering the word of God totally inert and unheard and unresponded to in our lives. 
In fact, all three kind of weave together to tell a story. They kind of create a narrative that I think is sometimes quite tempting to enter into and believe and live out. It's the narrative that goes like this. Life is full of worry. That's your problem. The solution comes by, if you don't want to have to deal with all these worries, make enough money to overcome the things that you would worry about. If you have money, you don't have to worry about what you'll eat. If you have money, you don't have to worry about what you look like. If you have money, you can actually reduce your anxiety. That's the solution. What's the outcome in the story? In this story of money, riches, and pleasures, the outcome is you get to avoid worries and you get to have money, and that affords you fun and pleasure, doesn't it? Does this sound like a familiar story? It's called the American dream. It's all about you. It's all about control. It's all about managing worries. And I, what I find is when I'm tempted to live the story, God becomes eclipsed in my life. I seek to control worries by what I have. And I, I get to have what I have by my own efforts. And then the outcome and reward is the fun I get to have. And what it does is it isolates me and it insulates me from the worries of others such that compassion no longer plays a role in my life. And the thing that it ends up doing is it says God's solution to what's wrong with the world isn't really important. That's not something you can manage or control. 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard says this, and he's got a fun name because he has a letter in his first name with a line through it, which is always cool. Um, He says this, Riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties. And they become then the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties about as well as the wolf, which is put to tending the sheep, secures them against the wolf. So this soil thwarts our response to God. It fails to see his assessment of the problem and his solution to it. It takes him out of the equation and instead puts us in the driver's seat, getting busy pursuing our own solutions to life. So what do we do? These very real and tangible obstacles. Well, Jesus tells the parable so that you and I will see ourselves. Stories are great vehicles for meaning because we can see ourselves within the story. And so what's important here is to recognize and identify our own obstacles, to recognize and come to grips with our obstacles to responding to God's word. And we need to examine our own lives and put a name to the obstacles that we actually have in responding to God. Where have we allowed the soil of our hearts to grow like one of these? Will you do that today? You do it right now in your note sheet to put a name to where am I like these soils. You name it. Sometimes it's hard to see ourselves and easy to ask other people. Simple to ask other people, not always easy. Say, what do you see? Somebody else, what do you see as an obstacle for me? And be ready to hear it. And if somebody asks you to speak that, then say it graciously with hope. Okay? So maybe today your obstacle's worries. It's the what-ifs. 
Maybe it's just, I'm having fun my way. Or maybe it's times are hard, and if God really cared, he'd change my circumstances. See, not only do we need to name our obstacles, but we also have to reject passivity. It's an attitude and a mindset that's essentially passive. See, passivity delays a response to God because it makes everything about circumstances. See, if God would change my circumstances, then maybe I'd respond differently. If God would just do this for me, if God would just get rid of this problem for me, then I would do this thing. I would respond this way. God, why aren't you doing what I want you to do? And see, the thing is, in this passive posture, we make our response all about some other factor. It's not me. It's something else. And the thing we keep finding when we go back to the scriptures is that God is less concerned with changing our circumstances than he is with changing us in the midst of our circumstances. Isn't that true? Have you ever seen that? And the reality is, when you are a changed person in the midst of your circumstances, you become the kind of person who changes circumstances for others. It's redemptive. So name our obstacles and resist every temptation to be passive about them. So if we're to resist passivity, how do we move towards responsibility? That's the second thing we see here in this section of Luke. And that is, how do we have an ownership of a response? See, if we're to resist passivity, then Jesus invites us into response ability. We're able to respond, just like Penny was capable of turning on a dime and saying, how can I help you, buddy? Right? How can I help you, buddy? <laughs> so this parable is inaccurately referred to as the parable of the sower. The, so- the sower figures pretty lightly in this. I think it's more accurately the parable of the soils. It's really uh, a cautionary tale on the conditions of hearts and how we respond to God. And so the disciples understandably come to Jesus and they say, what does all this mean? Help us get this. And he answers by saying that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to them. The word for secrets here is literally mystery. It's, the, it's, it's used very rarely in scripture. Um, and it, uh, it is essentially this long-awaited plan of God to bring about his salvation. It's this plan of God to right the world that's been hidden for ages that is now made known in plain sight for the world to see. So it's a mystery of God's plan made known and revealed. And my opinion here is that Jesus is saying that this mystery is made known in simple terms like parables. Um, In other words, parables are a great mode of communication because they are simple, accessible, and easy to grasp if you want to grasp what they have to say. If you're open to it, it's pretty easy to get it. And it's what Jesus says, I'm saying this as a way of fulfilling what Isaiah was told by God in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is this interesting hinge moment in the book of Isaiah where God and Isaiah have a conversation. God says, who will go for me and proclaim essentially my message to Israel? And he says, put me in coach. And then God says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. And the people are just going to keep on rejecting. They're not going to respond. They're just not going to receive what I have to say. 
Now, on the surface, it kind of looks like Jesus is saying that that people are going to be excluded against their will, as if people want to get what the parables have to say. And so he says it in the most mysterious, riddle-like way so that they won't accept the kingdom message. But the context of Isaiah is essentially saying that Isaiah will continue to preach over and over for his entire career the plain and simple message of the first five chapters of Isaiah to a stubborn people who will continue to resist and fail to respond, and it will be their own doing. And it would reveal their hearts. And Isaiah's like, how long do I have to do this? And Jesus, or the word of God to Isaiah was essentially, You're gonna, this is going to go on and on and on until the land is desolate, the people are carried into captivity, the forests are deforested, and all that's left is a stump with a holy seed, right? This is a picture of a Messiah. In the midst of utter desolation, there's still hope. And the seed of the Messiah. And so in this context of Luke, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, essentially, Israel has continued to reject God's word right up to the time of the Messiah, me, myself, and it isn't because the message is too difficult to grasp. It's because of the, in the simplicity of the message, their stubbornness of heart has been revealed. In other words, according to one theologian, God has put the cookies on the bottom shelf for everyone to get. The cookies are on the bottom shelf. The kids can grab them. And so he says, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. It's permissive. If you have ears, hear. Be careful. Consider how you listen. Because a response is available to you if you will hear. Um, as I was looking at this passage this week, it made me think of uh, John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. Has anybody read East of Eden? It's like this classic, classic American novel. And uh, Steinbeck uh, has these, these characters. One of them is Lee. He's this Chinese cook, and uh, he raises these kids who've been abandoned by their mom, and their dad's emotionally checked out, and he's just kind of this real wise character. And Sam, this Irish immigrant, who also is another kind of moral character within this kind of dark story. And they're interacting over tea, and Lee is struck by the Old Testament. Right? He's, he comes from kind of an Eastern tradition, but he's, he's grounded himself in this story of Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain murders his brother. And, uh, and he obsesses over this line where God says to Cain that sin is crouching at your door, desires to rule you, but you must rule it. Remember this line from Genesis 4? Okay, so, um, so he... Lee, again, this is at the turn of the 20th century, and so there's this kind of old English translations. Uh, one translation says, thou must rule over it. Right? And the other one is, thou shalt rule over it. And he's confused. And he says, one sounds like a law, and the other sounds, sounds like a promise. Which is it? Is it that I, I must do it, or that I will eventually overcome sin and, and rule over it? And Lee spends all these hours tearing through the Hebrew word timshel, And he comes to this conclusion that it means thou mayest, right? You remember this line from the book? Thou mayest, and it confers a choice. This is is what Lee says. He goes, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It, It might be the most important word in the world that says that the way is open. That throws it right back on a man. 
For if thou mayest, it is also true that thou mayest not. He can choose his course and fight it through and win. Lee's voice was a chant of triumph. You see, friends, Jesus offers this parable to us because we are a people with a choice in how we respond. But our response reveals our hearts. So we can't reject the gospel saying it's too intellectual, nor can we reject it saying it's not intellectual enough. It's a mystery. It's profound. It's multifaceted, but it's a mystery made known. It's accessible. The cookies are on the bottom shelf and they're available available to anyone who smells them and says, I want in on that. What strikes me in this parable is that the seed doesn't lack power and the sower lacks no generosity. See, the sower throws his seed to soils that are very likely to be infertile. But he throws it generously. And the seed itself, when it's received, it it grows, doesn't it? it? It unfolds in powerful life. See, in other words... The, the response to the seed doesn't go wrong because of the seed. The response to the seed goes wrong because of the soil. The good news, friends, is that the gospel gives us every resource we need for a response. See, Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and he's bled and died there in our place to atone for sin, to deal a death blow to the power and penalty of sin, the thing that God says is the problem, he offers a solution and it's his son given for us. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead to secure a relationship with the Father, your creator. He sends his spirit to be a companion and helper in this journey of faith in him. See, Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel, this message of Jesus crucified and raised, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You want rescue? The power is in the gospel. It's this dynamic, cosmos-creating, sin-forgiving, resurrection-from-the-dead kind of power, and it can be ignored. It can be rejected, but it can also be heard. It can also be retained. It can also produce a perseverance in character. So what does it look like then? What's it look like when we own a response to the word? This is what Jesus says. This is a good soil. It can be be compared to a good and noble heart that hears the word, retains it, and perseveres in producing a crop a hundredfold. Think about hearing for a second. What do you have to do to hear something? You have to listen, don't you? There has to be space for whatever's being said. And there has to be a desire for it, right? There has to be room and a heart that says, I'm willing to have a change of mind. I'm willing to own and receive what gets said Monday night was our um, date night, and uh, Lauren and I uh, were having a good evening, and I, I, I think she wanted 
me to get excited about something that she was excited about, and my response was less than enthusiastic. And I was starting to bum her out a little bit. And she told me very honestly that my response was making her kind of sad. And um, by the time we got in the car on our way home, uh, I, I was well into my very rational list of why my response was completely sane. Like it hurt. Your, your, your response of emotion makes sense on one level, but if you really thought, thought it through, from like my vantage point, you would clearly see that you shouldn't be irritated with me. Right? And so, um, right? this is, these are not my exact words, uh, but uh, this is essentially the force of what was happening, right? It's the trajectory of the story I was choosing to live in that moment. And, I, and so, you know, in the midst of my list of why it's like, well, this, you got to see my vantage point here. I uttered the words, and I'm listening to you. And she just very politely and wisely said, um, no, you're not. You're actually still talking at me. Right? I'm like, oh. Okay, right? So, I mean, what a dishonoring thing, right? If I, if I had really honored her in that moment, I would have said, okay, I, I need to hear this. Like, tell, tell me more about, like, why you feel that way. Can we change that, right? And so, uh, I, I, it, what's striking to me about this response is, like, A, yeah, another of the, the same lesson learned, but also, what if this, this is us in our relationship with God, where we keep saying, yeah, I'm listening, I'm listening, but we're actually doing all the talking. We're the ones who are setting all the agenda, yeah, go ahead and talk to me, God. I've said this before, but so many of us want God to say the next thing in our lives, but we're still ignoring the last thing that he said. And so we, we sometimes do this. I mean, I'm listening, but we're not open. We haven't created space for his word to realign our hearts with his purposes. So God calls us to come hearing. And, and if you're a guy here today too, sometimes this is, this is challenging, not only in relationship to other people and to, 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 to women potentially, but also mostly in our lives with God. And so one of the things that Pastor Ron's doing later this month is he's opening up a space for us to learn how to hear, how to meditate on Scripture. If you can be here at 6.30 a.m., you get a time to, to just have space to hear God in your life as you meditate on Scripture and learn how to pray and engage some of these practices of silence and quiet and solitude and meditation and prayer. I invite you to do that. Now, it's one thing to hear. It's another thing to retain, right? I, w- I wasn't initially hearing, Lauren. I think I've retained something. And, uh, and here's the reality. When we retain something, we hold on to it, don't we? We give it roots. We nourish its truth in our lives. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. There has to be a commitment to following through if we're going to retain what we're hearing. And we have to recognize as well that a response to God's word in our life isn't a one-time deal. Jesus says that they hear, they retain, and they persevere in producing a crop. In other words, what God wants to do in my life is an ongoing action. It's an ongoing process. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are being transformed from glory to glory. It's an ongoing process. And so we have to be prepared with an attitude and mindset that says, I am willing to live a long obedience in the same direction. And so that's the question this passage asks us. And I want to ask you this week, so what is the condition of the soil of your heart? 
Do I have a surrendered heart, a, a heart that's actually open to hear from God? Or do I have a heart that's ready to retain, to actually put it into practice, to give roots to what he wants to say in my life, roots in my relationships, roots in my habits, roots in my attitude, roots in the responsibilities I take on, roots in the things I no longer give space for in my life because it's ruining me. Am I in a place where I expect to persevere, to go after it for the long haul? These are the questions we have to ask, our, ask ourselves if we want to own a response to God's word in our life. Now finally, and I need to hurry this point a bit, and that is, that, what does an outcome of our response look like? Well, Luke, Luke points out that when we receive and retain God's word, it produces something. Um, some of you may have heard that you know it's it's really just evangelism, and or it's you know people around you are turning to Christ. Well, certainly that's part of the fruit, I think. But but I think what's consistent here with the story and what Jesus is saying in this context is that that what is produced in our life is a righteous character. That is, we're in right relationship with God, others, ourselves, and the world. See, you know, if you plant a cedar seed, it's going to grow a cedar tree. If a kingdom of God seed is planted in your life, it's going to bear kingdom character. Your life begins to reflect that which is implanted in you. So we begin to resemble God himself and his character. And the more and more my life lines up with the character and purpose of the king. But this section continues, and we also see that beyond the pr- produce of a kingdom-shaped character, which values what Jesus values, he also uses a metaphor of light. He says, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar and puts it under a bed. They put it on a stand. Right? If, if you receive the illumination and understanding of God's word, it goes on display. And, and most commentators agree that, that what is meant here is... When we respond to God's word in obedient faith, the result is greater understanding, greater illumination of what God has revealed. And there's a warning in this too, that Jesus is saying that the one who essentially receives what Jesus is offering gets more of it. The more I'm receptive to what he's saying, the more I get it, the more it makes sense, and the more I understand. But conversely, the one who fails to respond, Jesus says, ends with nothing They lose what they think they have and end up in darkness. And so obedient and trusting, responsive faith to Jesus' word yields greater understanding of it. And then finally, the last great outcome of a response to faith is this to this kingdom message is a family. Nope. Belonging to Jesus' family is his outcome. See, Luke attaches this tiny little story at the end of this section. Uh, where Jesus' mom and brothers come looking for him. And somebody says, your mom and brothers are looking for you. And, uh, and like, how offensive is this response? My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Like, not my brother. You know, like, I don't think it was quite that attitude. But there's a heart here that says, my family, my real family... They're the ones who hear me and put my word into practice. Could it be that the community of Jesus, the church, are not those who just attend, but who hear and respond and believe in obedience? Of course, that's what Luke's saying. Of course, he's setting us up for the book of Acts, which is the story of the church. 
that the family of Jesus are the ones who are responsive to the words of Jesus. And so as we live this story of responsiveness to him, what we end up seeing is that not only do I become a part of God's family, but I actually need God's family to sustain a life of responding to him. And so we we need each other in this. So where's God calling you to respond today? This is the question, right? So some of you are here today, and this is like the first time you've really heard and taken to heart this message of God's love for you, that he is pursuing you. He wants you to know him, and he wants to rule in your life in a way that yields a transformed life and character. So let me just say this morning, don't, don't leave without responding. Recognize there's a neutrality here. Recognize the one who calls you to himself is good and he loves you and he's just and he's made every provision possible to know you and draw you into the story that he's writing for the world. To surrender all you know of yourself to all that you know of who he is in this moment. And you'll learn that not only do you grow in understanding, you'll grow as a whole new creation. Now, others of you are in a place today where you're just like, I never meant to get this derailed from my faith. Like, I know better, but if I'm honest, I'm, I'm one of these other soils. I'm kind of just like, I've kind of pushed God away because things got hard or uncomfortable. I've kind of just lost God in, in the midst of what I'm worried about or what I'm uh, attaining in a and getting for myself, or, or this is the fun that I'm having, apart from him. He says, that's a, it's going to be a short-lived fun. What do you do? Be honest about it. Just get real with your soil condition. Like, I've soiled myself. <laughs> Sorry, it's, 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 bad, it's bad for a serious moment. But it's true, isn't it? To go, man, my life is marred. My life's messed up. It's more messed up than I care to admit. It's soiled. So God, I want to be honest and go, I need you to pull me out of where I'm at. I, I need a different response to you. I need to trust you as greater than these other things that I've let soil my heart's affections for you. So get real with your condition and don't waste any time thinking that I can respond later I can move toward a response when my circumstances change. You see, delayed obedience is still disobedience. And still others of you here, you're here and you're hearing and you're retaining, you're even persevering, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of produce. That, that maybe instead of illumination, you feel like you're getting confusion. I just want to encourage you, be careful today. Like, to see the kingdom life as an ongoing process. See, if we only take a single snapshot of ourselves in a season, we're always going to come to an inaccurate conclusion of ourselves. We're either going to think, I'm, I'm incredibly strong, or I think I'm incredibly weak. And so you have to see yourself within a larger story to continue to, to trust that the God who plants this, this powerful seed of his word in your heart will also bring it about for his good purpose as you respond and trust him. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue to respond to God this morning as his family. 
We want to continue to learn how to resemble him by moving towards the table. It's a place of communion where we have a family meal and we say to ourselves and to each other that what saves me, what rescues me, what sustains me is Jesus' life for me and for us. Jesus said in John 12, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you very truly, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you have ears to hear, hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your gospel. As we move towards your table, we want to come responsive to you, to do business with you, to talk to you about our heart condition, and to cling to you. For the first time, we're accepting you as Lord, embracing you in faith. Do it at the table. Come to the table. Grab the bread and cup and say, I need God to be Lord of my life, and I trust that what he's done in his son gives me that life. It forgives me and it frees me coming with something else come and share with the Lord what's on your heart respond to him in trust and let him lead you in this moment as you grab the bread and the cup let's take it remembering the one who gave his life for us in Jesus name Amen